This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Paul Howard Jones is a senior lecturer of education at the University of Bristol. He coordinates the uh, Neuroeducational Research Network at Bristol and is a member of the Royal Society Working Group on Neuroscience and Education. Uh, his particular area of interest is applying our understanding of cognition and neuroscience to, en- child, to, to enhance child and adult learning. Um, and his research explores the benefits offered to education by emerging technologies, aided by a critical consideration of underlying cognitive processes. He's also been carrying out experiments to help find out more about creativity, and that's one of the workshops you're going to be doing today, is looking at uh, the, the psychological aspects of creativity and how we can foster creativity in the classroom. Uh, recently, he's been looking at motivation uh, and how it might be possible to harness young people's fascination with computer games uh, to, for educational purposes. On minds, brains, and learning games. So there we are. Paul. Okay, uh, today I-, I want to deal with quite a number of different topics, so it's going to be quite pacey, but I'm hoping to leave enough time at the end for questions. Um, Two parts today, looking at neuromyths, some common misunderstandings and some general issues about bringing neuroscience and education together. And then I'd like to focus in on an example of neuroscience and education um, working together in a particular research focus that we're pursuing at my university. Okay. Now, if if you're writing notes, uh, I would suggest, really, the only thing that you absolutely must write down is this um, address of our website, because we do have a lot of free materials that you can download, and I, I think you'll find a lot of those, if you're, if you're interested in neuroscience, interested in the brain, I think you'll find those are very useful, and I've been told that that address can go on your conference website, is that right? So that... So you should be able to connect to it from there as well. Um, The network that I'm a part of does a number of things, but one of them is consulting with teachers and finding out um, what teachers think about some of the ideas that are coming through from neuroscience. And that's important because there's a lot of debate going on and quite often teachers' voices are not properly represented. Now, one of our recent surveys, not that recent anymore, actually, uh, 2007 showed that 90% of teachers thought that a knowledge of the brain was important or very important in the design of educational programmes. So there's a great enthusiasm, and I think it's quite justified. At the end of the day, you might have heard this before, but it is true that you are the only professionals uh, who have the responsibility, the daily responsibility, of changing the function, the connectivity, and even the structure of the brain. So it is... A justified interest, I think, that teachers have. And it's also justified by the science which is coming through as well. And I'm just going to briefly mention some of the things which are useful, if you like, or are showing themselves to be useful coming through from neuroscience. One of them is understanding teenagers. Yeah, there is a challenge. Um, I have some in my house, so I sympathise. Um, We now know that the teenage brain develops in a discontinuous fashion. So it's not the case that teenagers are young adults. It's not actually the case that they're older children. Teenagers' brain development um, 
is unusual in the sense that some parts are developing at a faster rate than others. So by the time you get to adolescence, your frontal and parietal lobes here are still developing whilst some subcortical structures, including those to do with reward um, and uh, you know, pleasure-seeking, those sorts of things, are actually fully developed. Now, these uh, frontal and parietal cortices are very important for some higher reasoning issues, um, such as gaining control over your impulses. And uh, we find that teenagers' cognitive abilities are sort of plateau out um, in a number of different areas. For example, um, prospective memory, the ability to remember what it is you have to remember, which is very important. Uh, my son always refuses to keep a list. He believes that he always knows what he's got to do um, the next day. And, uh, but my experience is that he usually has no idea whatsoever. Um, and this is one of the things that we find. Teenagers have a lot of trouble planning and organising themselves. But another area is risk-taking. And in fact, what this scan shows here is an area of the brain which is underactive in teenagers compared with adults. And it's an area of the brain to do with um, controlling and regulating your reward orientation. So if you really want something, that's going to be some subcortical structure, which we will be looking at later. But if you want to resist it, then this part of the brain starts becoming very important. However, it's actually underdeveloped in terms of its function in teenagers. So that explains, or helps explain, why you get a lot of inappropriate risk-taking quite often in, amongst teenagers. Um, but perhaps more educationally interesting is work that's been done by Blackwell and, and Carol Dweck, which has shown that simply understanding the brain can be important for educational achievement. So in the graph that we have at the bottom here, the solid line shows a control group and how their maths grades um, developed over time relative to average. And actually, you can see that these children were falling behind. Whereas the other group received an intervention, and that intervention consisted of being told about brain plasticity, the fact that your brain is in your control in terms of building it. Yeah, so you build your brain. Your brain is not a biological limit to what you can achieve. The brain is plastic. And the experiences that you choose to undertake and the experiences that you receive will change its function, its connectivity, and even its structure. So, for example, there's a study, a well-known study of taxi drivers that shows that the posterior part of their hippocampus is actually larger than other people. I was going to say normal people. But let me... <laughs> um, sorry, I just... Although, having met the taxi driver I, I had this morning... <laughs> they, do, they do go on, don't they, sometimes? Um, but, but also, the size is proportional to the number of years of taxi driving. So this is actually an effect which is a strong correlation. Even more impressive, they've shown that a three-month course of juggling actually changes areas of the brain to do with perception, changes the size of them. They get bigger. Um, it's interesting because, of course, you know, you've got a finite skull capacity. So if one part gets bigger, another part has to get smaller. And it's not quite clear which bits are getting smaller. Although in the case of taxi drive, no, I can do that. Um, so this is important because this is a, this is actually a, an, an educational intervention. We've been trying this in schools in a very small way in Denbyshire. We we prepared some materials for some PSC lessons, told children about brain plasticity, and it did actually show that their their ideas about effort, their ideas about 
how you move on, their ideas about learning actually did change as a result. So this is very positive. I'm going too slowly, I've realised. Uh, working memory is another area. Now, working memory is the ability to hold things in your attention. And actually, it's very limited for all of us, some more than others, you might say. But it's a bottleneck in terms of learning. Because when you're learning something new, you have to hold a lot of things in your attention. Eventually, they become automatic. And when they become automatic, then that frees up your working memory and you can move on and learn something new. And this is a, a fascinating brain image that shows this. Um, after training with complex mathematical uh, problems, you can see where areas of brain activity decrease in adults. And those are areas to do with working memory. So their working memory load is decreasing. Whereas areas of the brain, the posterior regions, um, in the right-hand picture, increase their activity. And that's to do with automatic processing. So there's a shift from very conscious working memory load to posterior um, automatic processes when you are learning and rehearsing something. So rehearsal is very important because without rehearsal, it doesn't become automatic. And unless it becomes automatic, you can't free up your working memory and you can't learn new things. But what, uh, so working memory is very important and it's very closely related to academic achievement. You know, if you've got a big working memory, then that's good. But even more exciting, working memory can be trained. And the graph at the bottom here shows the effect on working memory, no it doesn't, sorry, the effect of working memory training after 8, 12, 17 and 19 days of training half an hour a day on a computer-based test. But this graph is not the increase in working memory. Working memory did increase. This is actually a graph of fluid intelligence. So the actual basic measure of intelligence of these adults improved as a result of this computer-based 30-minute-a-day brain training, if you want to call it that. So this is all very hopeful. In mathematics, we're learning about the role of fingers, for example. Quite often, we've thought that fingers are something that are not to be you know, encouraged uh, with young children. That's one educational philosophy. And yet, we now understand from neuroscience that the areas involved with grasping with fingers are also the areas involved with grasping mathematically as well. And it's no coincidence that most mathematical errors um, are around... Uh, are, be are between numbers five and six as you shift from left to right hand, even in adults, even though you've completely forgotten about using fingers, the evidence of the importance of fingers to learning to count and learning to use mathematics remains with you as an adult. Um, so that's actually prompted some interventions and it's been shown that just training children in terms of their fingers can improve some of their um, counting, uh, some of their mathematical skills. I'm not going to go into reading in great detail because I know Usha's already dealt with that in depth yesterday. Um, but it is uh, interesting. I don't know, did she show you this graph? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we can actually detect children at risk from dyslexia at birth. And there are all sorts of issues as to whether that's a good idea or not, which we might discuss in a second. But um, And creativity. Um, I've personally done some work imaging uh, the parts of the brain to do with creativity and work with drama students to introduce that into their practice. And if you're interested, um, you can get that resource from the website, in fact, that I gave at the beginning. And there's a whole load of other stuff. 
ADHD. So many teachers are teaching children with ADHD. A knowledge of the brain and what ADHD is in terms of the brain would be really helpful, I think, and also the effect of the drugs. Memory and stress, we're beginning to understand um, the relationship between memory and stress. It's not as straightforward as, as we once thought. Sometimes stress will improve memory. I'm talking about mild stress now, by the way. You know, I'm talking about the stress of knowing you've got a test, not the stress of, I don't know, some trauma. Um, and and it's, it can actually be quite helpful to, to learning when it's used appropriately, that, that type of mild stress. Um, Dyscalculia, which is the mathematical equivalent, if you like, of dyslexia. We're having some real insights and some computer-based training, which is um, remediating dyscalculia in some areas. Um, Visualisation and imitation. When you visualise, you're using almost as much brain, uh, almost as, uh, sorry, let's put this in the right terms. When you visualise, you activate almost as much of the cortex as you do when you do the real thing. <laughs> which I think is a great, um, you know, it's, it's a great, it attests the power of visualisation as a potential learning tool. I've talked about adolescence, and of course we have things like smart pills, which are on the horizon, thanks to neuroscience. But this enthusiasm for the brain that I mentioned earlier can also give rise to a number of unhelpful and unscientific ideas. Um, there are a lot of commercial companies out there who are willing to make money out of um, producing invalid brain-based learning products. And these have given rise to a lot of very strange ideas amongst teachers. We surveyed our trainee teachers just as they were about to go into posts. And these are all ideas that really they picked up in schools because we don't tell them anything about brain gym. We don't tell them anything about um, learning styles or anything like that. But they pick these ideas up in schools. All of these are incorrect. But most of them thought that short bouts of coordination exercises could improve integration of left and right hemispheric function. Most of them thought differences in hemispheric dominance, whether your left brain or right brain, could explain individual learning differences. A third of them thought that exercises that coordinated motor perception skills could improve literacy. Um, an interesting number, about one in five, thought that drinking less than six to eight glasses of water a day would cause their brain to shrink. Um, a very common one is only using 10% of your brain. Uh, we use all of it all the time. Um, and this was a new one. I think this is a new neuromyth because of this discussion about implicit learning. Implicit learning means that you're learning something without knowing how you've learnt it. But you still have to pay attention. And yet 43% of our trainees thought that you didn't have to pay attention in order to learn something. Moving on quickly. Um, so a more subtle, however, a more subtle issue is how we think about development of the brain. And we asked our trainees, what do you think matters in terms of determining educational outcome? And most of them, uh, well, they, they thought the education environment and the home environment were the two key issues, but genetics were also playing a major role. But I think what was a slightly more sinister was the fact that there was a correlation between believing in the genetic basis of development and a sense of there being a biological limit to what they could achieve with children in the classroom. So how we think about brain development appears closely related to our attitudes in the classroom and, and our sense of what we can do. So uh, you know, to those teachers, um, I would say brain plasticity is a really important message. The brain is plastic. 
it, you know, it changes in, in response to education. I'll just briefly go through some of these um, other neuromyths. This is um, a good one, which is uh, actually getting a lot of weight in uh, political circles where people are discussing the removal of funding from HE and putting it into early years. Hillary Clinton is sometimes uh, said to be blamed for this uh, because she said in the 90s to a group of teachers at the White House, it's clear by the time most children start preschool, the architecture of the brain is essentially being constructed. This is the myth of three, that basically by three it's all over. Um, and a lot of it is based on this concept of the critical period. Now it is true that some earlier interventions have great impact on educational and social outcomes. It is also true that neural concepts such as the sensitive period, which I'll explain if, if you don't know what it is in a second, can help explain that impact in, in, in some respects. Um, now, there's these two terms, sensitive period and critical period. What do they actually mean? A, a critical period is a window in time outside of which it is impossible to learn something. So if there's a critical period for language, it means once that window of opportunity is passed, you cannot learn that aspect of language. Sensitive is a slightly weaker definition. It's just more difficult to learn when you're outside of that sensitive window. They do exist. However, um, what we know about sensitive periods is actually restricted to very early development, mostly primary functions such as sensory functions, our seeing and our hearing and our motor functions. And there is an increasing amount of evidence to suggest that other periods exist throughout adolescence as well. So it's not the sense, that, you know, we shouldn't be thinking that these periods are just restricted to uh, early years, although actually the ones that we know about are very early. Um, so, you know, if we're talking about primary functions, such as some sensory and perceptual functions, actually three is probably, you know, um, two is probably too late. You know? um, but these things, these things are not true. The brain is not constructed by the age of three. The brain carries on constructing itself well past the age of three. Um, there are massive changes in structure um, through puberty. And actually, you know, even through adulthood, you are changing the structure of your brain uh, through your learning. There is, um, actually, that's I should say no, very important point there. <laughs> I should say there is no scientific basis for favouring earlier enhancement of children with normal trajectories. What I mean by that is, is that what we know about sensitive periods is mostly about what happens when you severely deprive... Um, children's development, okay, or animal development. And we know that if you um, severely deprive that development, then you are going to often um, bring about changes which can be difficult to reverse. Okay? On the other hand, if you invest money or you invest time or you provide an enriched environment for those children who have suffered deprivation and you do it early enough, you can have uh, immense returns in terms of increases in IQ and increases in school achievement later in life. But that doesn't mean, and this is the important point, that if you invest the same amount with normally developing children, you're going to get a similar return in terms of these children's IQ boosting. So what we know about sens sensitive periods is about normal development coming off the tracks. It's not about enhancing normal development to produce something very, very special. 
So I think that's an important point. So when we start talking about sensitive periods, this is really most relevant to children who actually um, are, are quite you know, significantly disadvantaged in some respect. And also, the idea that you have these sensitive periods that are opening, and you have a limited child opening and closing, and you have a limited uh, period of time in which to uh, invest education in these children, gives, gives forth this idea of more begets more. Because you have this accumulating capital, intellectual capital, if you like. And there's a sense in which if the return you're getting is proportional to what is already there, then you want to invest as early as possible. But it's also sending a message that actually if children have already been disadvantaged, um, you know, that, that there isn't benefit in investing in those children. So you have to be very careful with some of these ideas. Um, the brain's not constructed by three years old. We have waves of synaptogenesis, making connections between neurons, um, occurring during childhood. Um, and in fact, that cutting back synaptic pruning of the connections between neurons can carry on until 19 years old. The reason why we got confused about this in the first place was because 20 years ago, all we knew were, was about monkeys' brains. And it's true that those processes do come to an end by three years old in monkeys, but not in children. Okay. Um, I'm going to move on a bit because actually I've, I've dealt with a lot of those issues in, in what I've just been saying. Now, I said that there were a lot of companies out there which are making money out of selling brain-based ideas. And I'm not mentioning any names because I don't want to be subject to any litigation. When I did write an article about this in the Times Educational Supplement, they had two, team, two teams of lawyers going through it beforehand. So I have to watch my step. But here are a few uh, of the ideas you might come across in those programmes. Learning styles. Visual, auditory, kinesthetic, for example. There are over 75 different types of inventory that you can use to find out your children's learning styles. Learning styles exist in the sense that if I surveyed you today, you would all have preferences. You would all express preferences in terms of how you would like to learn. Unfortunately, there is, no there is no convincing educational evidence that there is any benefit in teaching you in your preferred learning style. The psychological evidence shows that there may even be some benefit in teaching you in a style which you claim is not your preferred learning style. And the idea that neuroscience is backing learning styles because it said that, oh, but you have a visual cortex, an auditory cortex, you know, a kinesthetic cortex doesn't hold up because the brain is so massively interconnected. So the educational, psychological and neuroscientific evidence does not support the um, benefit of identifying children's learning styles. That's not to say that teaching in a variety of different media isn't effective. There's lots of good educational and scientific evidence to support that. Left brain, right brain? Well, I've already said the brain is massively interconnected. And in fact, any simple task, you're going to be using both the left and right brain. So turning this into another type of learning style where you're identifying left brain learners and right brain learners, there's no evidence to support that that is helpful. Now, somebody said that Brain Gym was barking me out to lunch. The science behind Brain Gym cannot easily be recognised by established science. Um, it is, I would describe, I would say as a, as a scientist, I would say it's rather odd. Um, you have, apparently, I'm told you have brain buttons, and if you rub them here, you can use that to integrate left and right hemisphere. 
Um, the head of the Medical Research Council said that was a bit like rubbing your radiators in order to fix your central heating. <laughs> the trouble is with all these things is that there's always some little seed of interesting fact which is useful. Like with the learning styles, I said multimedia learning, very important, you know. It's just the idea of teaching in one style to a preferred style is not... And, and the same is also true with Brain Gym, um, because, you know, we know that exercise is closely related to learning. And this are two, these are two graphs. On, on the left, we have mathematical achievement correlated with fitness, and on the right, we have reading achievement correlated with fitness. It's a weak relationship, but it is a positive one in respect to grades, uh, whereas body mass index actually has a negative um, correlation with academic achievement. But even more interestingly, uh, a study was done with two three-minute sprints, and that, show, that was shown to increase short, medium, and long-term memory for material that was presented after those two three-minute sprints. And it's it was also related in this study to something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, which is kind of like um, stuff that's good for brains, basically, if you translate that into, into normal language. Um, and we know that that's very important for synaptic plasticity, which is making connections between synapses, uh, sorry, making connections between neurons, and the technical name for that is synapses, and so, therefore, there's a good basis for understanding now the neuroscience of how exercise supports learning. So that is important, um, but it's about aerobic content. It's about the extent to which it gets the cardiovascular system pumping. And, of course, uh, things such as educational kinesiology actually are not about aerobic content. And what about food for brains? What's good for brains? Well, we asked year four. Um, wasn't me that said it. But sometimes you're told that omega-3 is good for brains. Um, this is something from BBC Online. Elliot is nine years old. He was falling behind with his schoolwork. But over the past year, a dramatic change has taken place in Elliot. He sourced through Harry Potter books. He heads to the library after the school bell has sounded. And, and I know, actually, um, Usha, who was here yesterday, was telling me a story that one of her friends went to a parents' evening uh, worried about her daughter's literacy. And she was given a packet of seeds. So, you know, there is a strong belief... The seeds contain omega-3, and you can get clever milk and you get clever bread now, can't you? And, and, you know, people take fish oils in the belief that they're going to improve their academic achievement. And I think one of the trade names is IQ, if you get it, IQ fish oils. Um, but actually, there is circumstantial evidence to show that if you're pregnant and you're eating a lot of fish, there is a higher likelihood that your child will have a, sorry, your, your child will in general have a higher IQ. So there is some interesting circumstantial evidence around this that suggests omega-3 is actually very important for brains. Unfortunately, there's no evidence to show that taking supplements once, you know, once you're out of the womb can actually improve your academic achievement in the general population. And actually, there's a big study going on at the moment at Bristol University, cohort of thousands of children where they looked at this, and I'm afraid... They've just told me that if the effect is there, if, you, if, if it is possible to raise your intelligence using fish oils, it's so small it's not worth talking about. I'm just looking to see how I'm doing with time here. Okay, I'm not doing too badly. Um, okay, so water. Uh, the, in a One Brain Gym book, you will be encouraged to sing this with your children. 
to the song, uh, to the melody of Farajaka, I think. <laughs> Let's drink water, I love water, it gives me energy. No, it doesn't actually give you energy. In fact, actually, it's one of the very few things that you can ingest that has no calorific content whatsoever, ironically. Um, and yet there is a, a belief that uh, drinking water can help you learn. And these are just a, a range of, of articles that I found on the internet about it. What does the research say? Well, there's only one piece of evidence that's shown that children will voluntarily dehydrate themselves in a classroom. And that was found in the lowest point on the Earth's surface, in the Dead Sea area, which is one of the hottest places in the world. There's no evidence that children will voluntarily dehydrate themselves. So if, as long as they have access to water, there's no evidence that children in schools will not drink water. You know, that they, there's no evidence you have to monitor that drinking of water, provided they have access to it in schools anywhere else in the world. There is no evidence of academic achievement being related to drinking water. But the seed of truth is that even mild dehydration can decrease cognitive ability and it can slow down your ability to learn. However, it's also true that if you drink water when you're not thirsty, the same thing can happen. But then you might say, ah, oh, but if you don't drink enough water, you could die, you know. But then actually there are some, unfortunately, a rising number of cases of people drinking too much water and dying. So now you probably think you're walking on a tightrope today, you know, too little, too, too, too much, could be fatal. Um, but we have this wonderful mechanism in the brain, uh, and... Um, I suppose you could call it thirst, basically. That, that when, when, you know, when you need water, you will feel thirsty. And the important thing is that you have access to water. Now, there is one caveat here. In unusual weather conditions, or during or after exercise, it is possible, and there is evidence, that children will voluntarily dehydrate themselves. They won't realise, basically, they need to drink water. And, of course, school sports days are a classic example of where both of those things come together. But, you know, in a temperate environment, um, and you're talking about normal, healthy children um, that are not exercising, you know, there is no, and they've got access to water, there is no uh, fear or need to monitor. So it's all about encouraging children to drink when thirsty and making sure that they can. Except, as I say, under these uh, unusual conditions of heat or, um, or, ex or when they're taking exercise. Caffeine is another area where we, we tend to think that kids are... I'm not going to go through all these technical issues here, but the important thing is that we think caffeine makes kids fizzy. So when they're drinking Coca-Cola and they're coming into your lesson, they're going to be all like this. Um, actually, it, it's not quite as simple as that. I'm afraid, and this is true for the cup of tea and coffee that you're, you're drinking today as well. If you're a regular tea drinker, put your hand up if you regularly drink tea or coffee. Right, okay. So basically, your baseline has shifted. Right? And when you wake up in the morning your cognitive function is depressed until you've had that cup of tea, relative to somebody who doesn't drink caffeine at all. So yes, you need your cup of tea, but you only need your cup of tea because you, like me, <laughs> basically have, have, have um, adjusted to caffeine. Okay. So, and it's true also with children that even um, a f taking one 500ml bottle of Coke, that's the type that's dispensed from the machines um, a day, has, um, sorry, no, hang on, let's get this right. Let's get the statistic right. Sorry, two cans, sorry. Two cans of cola a day is enough to have the same effect with children. Um, their cognitive function will be suppressed most of the time, except when they've had their fix. 
The alertness only rises to baseline levels when you receive some caffeine. And of course, if they're sleepy, that's going to um, knock on to their academic achievement as well. And sleep, uh, if you're using caffeine to stay awake at night, which some students do, that's a bad idea as well, because sleep is really important for learning. When we sleep, um, we actually consolidate what we've experienced during the day in our memory. And what we're looking at here in the, in the, top, um, in the top images are activities in the brain to do with daytime pre-sleep experiences and activities. And then when you go to sleep, similar sorts of activities arise that resemble the daytime activities. And that is because what you've learned during the day is now being recycled around and laying down so that it's more permanent in your memory. So if you have disrupted sleep, those um, things are not occurring. And a very interesting study um, that I came across when I was looking um, at a review, when I was reviewing about technology in the brain recently, showed that playing computer games, for example, even early in the evening, can disrupt sleep later on, and it can disrupt memory for the homework that you were doing as well. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of issues to do with computer games, which I haven't got time to go into, but if there's a question, I can take that later. There's also a whole bunch of ethical issues that we have to worry about in this new field. Smart pills, brain training. I mean, smart pills, for example, we have got the drugs now that will make you more clever. I tried to buy some Dinepazil, which increases your memory. Uh, let me just show you the next slide. That shows you the grey boxes are people who've been taking Dinepazil. The black boxes are the people who haven't. They're the control group. On the left, you've got verbal memory. On the right, you've got visual memory. These are normal, healthy 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds. Um, and you can see that the memory for what they experienced when they were taking the drug is definitely improved. This is a drug that's being produced for Alzheimer's, but it works with healthy people as well. I tried to buy some on the internet. It's not difficult. Um, I think it was about uh, 12 pills for $20. Um, there were two free Viagra thrown in as well. <laughs> which... Uh, Oh, no, seriously, um, it's quite tempting. There's all sorts of scenarios. You can imagine how those two could... But no. um, you know, educators have very mixed views about these things, which I'll show you in a minute. Infant screening for dyslexia. Is it a good idea or is it not? If you're actually labelling a child as potentially at risk of reading difficulty as at newborn, um, you know, that, that takes our concerns about labelling to, to a new level in some areas. Um, genetic profiling, we're going to be able to tailor learning to individual genetic profiles soon. Technically, we could do it already. Um, it won't be long before parents will be at the head teacher's door with a brain scan and a genetic uh, profile saying, right, what are you going to do about this? <laughs> how, are you, how are you including this information in your teaching? And of course, when we're doing collaborative research, there are all sorts of issues. Neuroscience is often controversial often involves animal experimentation. Um, and, and there are different ethical perspectives, different risk-benefit ratios. I scan people's brains um, in order to help raise GCSE results. So that's not quite the same as, as finding a cure for ADHD or something, is it? You know? So you know, there are all those sorts of issues. And, and I have to say, I, I don't experiment on animals. I only experiment on small children. So. <laughs> We asked some educators uh, 
head teachers, teachers and trainee teachers about some of these issues. Now, I'm not sure if you can see this, but it was quite interesting because, um, I mean, let me just pick one of these out. This is all about COGS, which is short for cognitive enhancers, these drugs that are, are coming onto them to, um, on the horizon now. Um, and I think the one I'll pick out, yeah. Okay, so strongly agree. So most people agreed that cognitive enhancers most educators agreed, should be tightly controlled and their use by healthy individuals made illegal. In other words, very tight government control on these. Uh, you've already got um, some universities in the States, actually, where a third of the students are using cognitive enhancers. So this is a, and I know that some of my colleagues, some of my neuroscience colleagues are using them as well. So this is, you know, this is happening now. Um, and yet the scientists are publishing articles telling us this is wonderful. You know, and, and if I take you back, well, I won't take you back, but in, in the slide a moment ago, I had a quotation from Michael Gazaniga, very, very, very well-respected neuroscientist, saying the government should keep out of it and let individuals explore the new enhancement landscape. Well, that's not quite how educators feel about it. Um, so I've given you a very broad overview, in a way, of some of the issues that are involved with neuroscience and education. I want to talk, uh, in the time that's left, about a particular uh, focus that we've been looking at and the way, that I, the way that I think neuroscience and education could work together. And this is focusing on learning games. And what we've been interested in is emotional engagement in the classroom. I think there's a sense in which we're facing an engagement crisis where we are having to compete with Sony Playstations in order to, to maintain the attention of our students. More and more, media entertainment is becoming very, very engaging. And I think we need to do something to understand why games are so engaging and, and see if we can apply that in the classroom. Why? Because engagement is absolutely fundamental to learning, especially emotional engagement, because emotion and memory circuits in the brain are closely linked together. Um, if, you're, you know, if you're emotionally engaged, there's a better chance that you're going to learn. This is the area of the brain we're particularly interested in. The, the nucleus accumbens, which is about the size of a pea, it activates with all the things that we love, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and, and actually many other things as well. Any visceral desire that you feel will activate your nucleus accumbens. Um, and we're talking here about a very visceral type of motivation. I would accept that there are other types of motivation that are very important in education. The desire to want to become a doctor, um, you know, the desire to uh, achieve and, and show yourself to be worthy, and all those things are very important. And the love of learning as well, very important. But I also think this very visceral type of excitement that children feel when they're playing computer games is also quite important in the classroom, or it could be. So I'm very interested in that particular part of the brain, and it's an area of the brain that draws up dopamine from the ventral tegmental area there at the bottom. And do, dopamine is a neurotransmitter. And the, the wonderful thing about this, which we're discovering now, is that dopamine activity there can actually um, increase synaptic plasticity. So it, it increases the efficiency with which neurons make connections. So whatever happens, to be you know, whatever happens to be going on at the time, if you're getting big doses of reward response in the brain, you're more likely to be uh, remembering it. And that is probably why video games are such effective teachers, because they are... Oh, sorry. 
because they are very effective teachers. They can improve your visual attention abilities. They can teach you emotional response, um, pro-social emotional response, also aggressive emotional response, sadly. Um, and they can also um, even improve your eyesight. And all of this occurs, we believe, because of this release of dopamine, increasing synaptic plasticity, increasing the rate at which the brain is learning. I have to say, I've skipped over an awful lot. There are an awful lot of gaps in that understanding that we need to fill in, but that appears to be the picture which is emerging. Um, now, if you offer children two gold stars to remember something, or to learn something, or you're rewarding them with two gold stars, and then you increase it to four gold stars, you don't double the likelihood of them remembering or them learning. The relationship between the reward you offer in the classroom and the learning that you see is actually very poor. Lots of psychologists have tried to track it down, but you just don't see the relationship very clearly. It seems very random. However, the response of the brain's reward system is very closely related to the amount of learning that is achieved. And this is basically showing you on the, on the left-hand picture, um, you can see that the activity on the right-hand picture is activity in the nucleus accumbens, left nucleus accumbens, and they've plotted it against the likelihood of you remembering uh, what was going on at the time. And you can see there's a very nice linear relationship. So clearly what we need to do is understand what the how the brain's reward system is responding in a classroom, and we want to um, nurture that if we want to have good learning. And it also tells us why students are so, um, why, why students love their computer games. The likelihood is that it's something to do with reward uncertainty. Now, we're always told to be consistent with reward. If a child knows the right answer, uh, then they should have a mark. We, that, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why we think that's a good idea. We like to be seen to be fair. Um, and also, it seems to kind of make sense that achievements should be recognised if you want to reinforce learning. Actually, the way the brain responds is a little bit different. And this is showing you uh, the dopamine in the midbrain regions of a monkey looking at visual patterns on a screen. And have I got a pointer? I don't think I have got a pointer. Well, is there anything I can point with? I mean, I could, I could at this point walk over here. <laughs> can you still hear, hear me? Oh, okay, right. Um, so we're measuring what's going on in this monkey's brain here when it's looking at these patterns. And these two blue lines here, the top one is the CS, that's the conditioned stimulus. So the pattern is coming on and then it's staying on and then going off. And at the end here, there is sometimes a drop of honey. That's the reward, okay? But it occurs at the end. Now, some of these patterns always are followed by a drop of honey. And this is what, so it's 100% certain it knows when it sees that pattern it's going to get a reward. As soon as it sees the pattern, spike of dopamine. Ah, desire, I want the honey. Actually, when the honey arrives, you see there's no dopamine response because it's totally predictable. If there's a pattern that has never been associated with reward, then nothing happens when it sees it. But when the, when the little bit of honey arrives, it says, oh, yes, thank you very much. I, I want that. Yeah, the spike of dopamine. The really interesting thing is what happens when it sees a pattern that half the time is associated with reward, half the time is not. Uncertain reward. You get a spike of dopamine when it sees the pattern that signals it, almost as big as the one that says you're going to get a reward. And then the dopamine ramps up 
until the outcome is known. Now, if you integrate over time, that means there's more dopamine sloshing around for the uncertain reward than either the wholly predicted reward or the totally unpredictable one. So uncertain reward actually enhances the brain's response in terms of dopamine uptake in that area. That is probably a major reason why video games are so exciting. Because there's a lot of very, there's a very rapid schedule of uncertain rewards coming through all the time. And what about humans? Yeah, we love 50-50 chances as well, but not in school. If you look at children, they actually prefer something closer to, well, someone's measured it here, 87%. Why is that then? Because surely, um, you know, surely they, they, they want that dopamine. But, but the thing is, if it's an academic issue, if it's an academic problem, there's all sorts of social and self-esteem issues that enter into it. So they prefer something which is more comfortable and that their comfort zone is actually about 90% certain to get it wrong. If it, it, get it right, sorry. If it's 100%, it's too easy. But if it's less than 90%, the, the risks are too great. Which is okay, because rehearsing at that rate is probably still quite useful, but you're missing out that roller coaster ride of the dopamine. And that dopamine's quite important in terms of synaptic plasticity. So this suggests a learning games approach where you're actually introducing chance-based uncertainty. Because the wonderful thing about chance-based uncertainty is that you can still, you, you still get your uncertainty. It still makes it very un, unknown what's going to happen. But it, it's, it's, not, um, it's not an indication of your ability necessarily because it's just luck. Okay. I'll, sh I'll show you how this works in a minute. But first of all, we wanted to test out if it was true. We asked children to pick their maths question, either from Mr Certain, who would give them a point if they were correct, or Mr Uncertain, who would toss a coin and give them two points for heads, and if it's tails, gives them no points at all. And what we found was that as the session, the maths session went on, so more and more they were picking Mr Uncertain. Now this is true for boys and girls, but it was particularly led by boys because we know the boys' reward system develops in a slightly different way to girls. Around the age of, around puberty, we believe that ovarian hormones feminize the reward system. Okay, and I've seen this you know, in, in, in my daughter, actually, that she was a great Nintendo player up until about a year or two ago, and then now, now she's 12, she never touches it. The boys, on the other hand, still, you know, carrying on, 16, my oldest is, still can't get him off Call of Duty. And what, you know, so basically, I suppose what I'm saying is that, that girls, you know, boys will be boys, but girls will grow up to be women. <laughs> okay, so this is, just a, this is just an imagery that shows you um, the top brains here, actually, areas of the brain where, the, where, where boys are more active than girls. Um, the green spots are where girls are more active than boys when they're playing. They're playing computer games, and... The, the, the warm spots are all those areas where the boy's brain is more active than the girl's brain. The green spots are all those areas where the girl's brain is more active than the boy's. And you may notice there are no green spots. <laughs> this is even more interesting because this is functional connectivity. This is the connections in the brain where um, activity is flowing between different parts of the brain. And actually, you can see we've got the nucleus accumbens and the reward system areas down here, which are better connected for computer games. And actually, there is one area here, which is orbital frontal cortex, um, which is an area to do with emotional processing, which is more active in girls, uh, more connected in girls when they're playing computer games. Um, so it's possible that, in fact, there's, you know, they're playing it for different reasons.
reasons. Maybe there's more social processing going on. Who knows? I don't know. But certainly, there is a different response. And then we thought, well, okay, this is great, but uh, this is quite radical in a way. Aren't these kids going to be saying that this is terribly unfair? So we played another game with children called Wipeout, where they were rolling a dice, uh, and they were playing against the computer. They were playing in pairs against the computer. And they rolled the dice, and they would win the points in the dice if they got the multiple-choice science question correct afterwards. And if they did get it correct, they could roll again. But they didn't want to keep rolling. They wanted to pass back to the computer eventually, because actually if they rolled a one, they'd lose all their points for the game. Sorry, all their points for the turn. But if they rolled a double one, they'd lose all their points for the entire game. It'd be a wipeout. And we thought, well, this is so um, against the Ofsted idea of reward consistency. We're going to have a riot. But no, we didn't have a riot. They absolutely loved it. We got good learning games. And we had this emergence of sport talk. So if they won by any means at all, it was because they were brilliant. And if they lost, it was just bad luck, wasn't it, really? We was robbed, I think. It's the sort of thing you hear when kids are coming out of a football match, or adults coming out of a football match. Um, is it just a superficial effect? Is it the sugar coating on the bitter pill of learning? No, we don't think so, because we, had, we, we did another experiment with adults where we froze the dice, so they knew they were always going to get a double three. And we compared that no game condition with the normal game condition, and we measured the emotional response using skin conductivity with adults. And of course you get uh, an emotional response when you're rolling the dice in the game condition, but interestingly, the emotional response to the question answering as well was also greater in the gaming condition. So it also transforms the, the learning part um, of the experience as well. And in fact, we've taken it one step further and we've found that using a computational model, we can estimate the dopamine in the brain during a learning game, and it predicts memory performance in a way that the winnings that are on offer, the number of points that are on offer, um, you know, in a no-game condition, d does not. So this is very hopeful. Um, it's all about understanding the brain's response to reward rather than just reward, if we want to improve learning in the classroom. There's a lot of science that's missing in this, and we're having to do new um, scientific studies, and one of them was to find out what happens in a competitive situation. So if you're looking at your competitor receiving rewards, how do you respond? And this was quite interesting, because what we found was that your reward response is the opposite of whatever your competitor is, do, is, is achieving. So if it's all about your competitor's failure, basically. <laughs> When your competitor unexpectedly fails, your reward response shoots up, which means that that's a very good time for you to learn. So you're learning a lot about your competitor's mistakes. But what I found quite difficult to believe, and we went, you know, we had to look at the brain images, I could, you know, for a long while, and we lowered the statistical threshold very, very, you know, um, well, very, very high, so we could actually see any any evidence at all of brain activity related to learning from your competitors' successes, and there was none, <laughs> which is really quite surprising. So if your competitor does some, something unexpectedly successful that you could obviously learn from, nothing, nothing there at all. Um, so all of this you know, feeds into how we could design learning games, and we've taken this further, we've been working, and we've even got a handbook actually, I've, bought, I've, I've made up a handbook of how to teach with immersive gaming using these sorts of ideas, and we have a PowerPoint slide 
which you can download from our website. If you go to the bottom right-hand corner and go on the front page of our website, it's Twig, Teaching with Immersive Gaming Resources. And you can download this and you can try it, and there's a free chapter of the book that tells you how to do it as well. And we're having good learning games. It's being supported, sorry, good learning in our learning games. It's being supported by uh, Denbyshire LEA, so I'm having to travel quite a long way up to North Wales to do it. But we've actually managed to teach two entire pieces of work, you know, sort of four lessons in a row using this technique. And the kids actually love it and, and they're learning a lot as well. And um, they get very, very excited. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, Thank you. Very Thank you very much. Um, I think teachers are very enthusiastic about including neuroscience in, in their teaching and there are um, a number of things I think teachers can do uh, straight away. I mean the first thing is to try to raise their awareness about the neuro myths. So there's a lot of strange ideas that need to be um, you know, they got rid of straight away if you like. Um, ideas about learning styles and um, you know, um, I would say sometimes neuroscience is used to support ideas like multiple intelligences when in fact you know the support isn't there so there's a need to get rid of some of the neuro myths um, but then you know there are some positive things such as the um, effective exercise on learning um, you know what we're understanding about learning games which is my particular area um, the need for children to know something about their own brain and the effect that that can have on their achievement as well I think there's a lot of evidence to show that um, using different type of media do, does support learning. So although there is no uh, benefit from teaching to a particular learning style, um, I think the idea of presenting information in visual, auditory, kinesthetic forms for everybody is actually a good thing. I think, uh, I think there's sort of two key messages I've tried to get across. I think the first thing is that you have to be cautious uh, when you find ideas that allege um, some sort of basis in neuroscience. So be cautious, be, be sceptical, check out that this is written by people who are publishing in science and, and know what they're talking about. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that I've tried to express today is the potential of neuroscience to inform learning games. I think there's an awful lot that we could do by, by revising the, the way in which we're using reward in the classroom. I think one of the most important things about the plasticity of the brain is that it undermines this idea that, that learners have a biological limit to what they can achieve. Um, I mean, if you ask children, especially in the lower sets and less able children, about what's holding them back, they're probably going to tell you, well, it's because it's my brain, you know, basically, it's my, you know, I'm just not that bright, whatever. In actual fact, um, you know, you construct your brain. So the experiences that you choose to expose yourself to, um, your application will change the, the function, the connectivity and the structure of your brain. I think, um, I mean, engaging learners is, is, there's all sorts of things that are very important. You know, I'm having interesting topics, I mean, good relationships with the students. Um, I mean, the thing that I think is, is underutilised, if you like, is the use of games in the classroom. I think that is one area where increasingly now we are competing with such effective media entertainment. I think we really need to find more exciting ways of engaging children with learning games in the classroom. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.